God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. And as you all know, we're here to see the Big Book come alive with uh, our guests, Joe M. from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Charlie P. from Maysville, Arkansas. Let's give them a big hand. Thank you, everyone. My name is Joe, and I'm an alcoholic. Truly, by God's grace and the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous that I found in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm sober today, and for that I'm very, very thankful. I uh, was back there going to the restroom a while ago, and this lady tapped me on the shoulder. She said, are you Joe or Joe and Charlie? And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, do you ever get nervous at one of these things? And I said, well, not really. And she said, well, what are you doing in the ladies' restroom? <laughs> so I settled down here a little bit. Before I forget, I want to thank uh, Carmelita and Walt and Harold and anybody else who's on the committee for inviting us out here, and, and uh, I know all the hard work that they've done, and we appreciate that very much. And I especially want to thank each and every one of you for being here, because if it weren't for you, we wouldn't have any meeting at all. It would be a very lousy meeting with just Charlie and I, I can tell you that. So thank you for coming also. Charlie. Hi, everybody. My name is Charlie Parmelita. I'm a very grateful recovering alcoholic. Hi, Charlie. Because I'm a member of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the grace of the power that I found in the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I haven't found necessary to take a drink for 10,516 days today, one day at a time, and for this I'm grateful. Great to be here. <laughs> Joe leaned over a while ago and he said, Charlie, this is one of the finest looking bunches of sick people we've seen in a long time. Isn't it <laughs> We always uh, like to say as we start one of these things that we do not consider ourselves to be the gurus of the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous. We don't consider ourselves to be the experts on anything at all. We're just two old drunks, met together several years ago, found we had a mutual interest in the Big Book. We studied it together for quite some time. Hopefully we've learned a few things about it. And those few things we've learned about it, we just love to be able to share them with other people. We do not attempt to speak for AA as a whole, and you are most certainly free to agree or disagree with anything that we say throughout the entire weekend as you see fit. In fact, if you hear us saying things that can't be reconciled with what's in the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, we suggest you just don't pay any attention to those things. And we'll do our best to keep most of our conversation centered on the book itself. We believe our book when it says we are meant to be joyous, happy, and free. Now, we love to have a good time. <clears throat> Excuse me. We love to laugh. We love to cut up. We love to tell jokes. 
and we love to hear other people laugh also. And from time to time, we may stop whatever we're doing, tell a little joke, just to get some humor started. And if we tell a joke and it isn't funny, well, go ahead and laugh anyhow. It'll make you feel better and make the one next to you feel better, and it'll certainly make us feel better also. We are fully aware of the fact that the mind will absorb only about what the rear end will stand. And some of these sessions do become quite long. And if you feel the need to get up and move around during one of these sessions, please feel free to do so. That's not going to bother us at all. If you feel the need to go down and get back and get a cup of coffee, go downstairs somewhere and smoke a cigarette. Or if you feel the need to go get rid of a cup of coffee, please feel free to do that. It's not going to bother us at all. Tonight we're probably going to go straight through. Simply, if we don't, we'll be here too late. But tomorrow and tomorrow afternoon, tomorrow morning, tomorrow afternoon, Sunday morning, we'll be taking regular break periods. But tonight we'll try to go straight through. So if you feel the need to get up and move around or go somewhere, please feel free to do so. I always start, like to start with a little joke, uh, dealing with the alcoholics, a joke of some type. And one of those that I love the most is, is about a brain surgeon. And this brain surgeon had developed a way to transplant the human brain in its entirety. We've been doing it for years with the other organs of the body. He developed a way to do it with the brain. And this older fellow went to see him and he said, Doc, my brain hadn't been working at all. can't remember anything. I can't figure anything out anymore. Do you think maybe you can help me? And the surgeon said, well, let's give you a good physical examination first and see what kind of shape your body's in. And if your body's okay, well, maybe we can do something. So he gave the old man a good physical, and after it was over, he said, Oh, yeah, your body's in great shape. He said, I'm sure I can transplant a brain in your head, and everything would work out just fine. And the old man said, Well, what do you have to offer? And the surgeon said, Well, let's go up in the display room, and I'll show you what we've got in stock at the present time. <laughs> and he took him up in the display room, and he said, In this case over here, I have the brains of an attorney said, I could transplant this in your head. Everything would be great. It would cost you $20,000. The old man said, well, do you have anything else? And he said, yeah, in this case over here, I have the brains of a doctor. He said, I could transplant this in your head. Everything would be great. cost you 50000 And the old man said, well, is there anything else to offer? And the surgeon said, oh, yeah, in this case over here, I have the brains of an alcoholic. He said, I could transplant this in your head. Everything would be fine. cost you $100,000. And the old man said, I don't understand. 10000 for an attorney's brain, 50000 for a doctor's brain, and 100000 for an alcoholic's brain? The surgeon said, well, hell yes, man. It's brand new. It's never been used before. <laughs> I think most of us will go to the grave with at least 50,000 miles left on the original warranty that we never did touch it. If we're going to uh, study the big book Alcoholics Anonymous, which of course that's what we're here for this weekend, I think it would do, be well if we would go back and look at just a little bit of the history behind the book, be able to see what happened to some of the first people that put this thing together. And by looking at that history, then it's going to make it a lot easier to understand the book itself as we go through that. And what we'd like to do to look at some of the history is go to the forward to the second edition Roman numeral 15, 
And we'll start with the last paragraph on that page. So everybody that's got your books, if you're ready, <clears throat> Roman numeral 15, and the last paragraph on that page. Joe? One of the things that's helped me over the years in studying Bill's writings, and he does this in, in most all of his writings, so if you kind of follow along with what he does, and he'll help, help you understand some of his writings. For instance, he'll always tell us what the problem is, then he'll just tell us the solution to that problem, and then he'll give us a practical program of action to Im implement the solution that he just described. He does that in most all cases in his writing, so that kind of helped me in, in understanding how Bill writes. So the bottom of the page, on Roman numeral page 15, he said the spark that was to flare in the first <clears throat> AA group was struck in Akron, Ohio in June 1935 during a talk between a New York stockbroker and an Akron physician. Now we know that New York stockbroker to be this fellow named Bill Wilson. I think we're treating Bill pretty good when we call him a New York stockbroker. He really was, and he was a New York City stock speculator. He made his living out of selling fast, talking to slow-thinking people. I don't want to take anything away from Bill because he's a great man. But I think we all need to realize that he's a real alcoholic, just like all the rest of us. And understanding that, it'll make it easier to understand the book. Because after all, Bill is the primary author of the book. The New York, the, the uh, Akron physician is this fellow named Dr. Bob Smith. Six months earlier, the broker had been relieved of his drink obsession by a sudden spiritual experience following a meeting with an alcoholic friend who had been in contact with the Oxford groups of that day. A little later on, we're going to get into Bill's story, and we're going to see in Bill's story where he had what he always called a vital spiritual experience in the town's hospital in December of 1934. But prior to him having that spiritual experience, certain things had to take place in Bill's life. And one of the things was that this meeting with the alcoholic friend took place in the latter part of November 1934, and this was a fellow named Abby Thatcher. And Abby Thatcher came with Bill and sat down in, with Bill in his Bill's kitchen and he gave Bill what turned out to be two vital pieces of information. He said, Bill, people like you and I who have become absolutely powerless over alcohol, if we're going to recover from that condition, we're going to have to have the aid of a power greater than human power. He said, the doctors and the ministers and the psychiatrists have tried to help people like us, but the human power doesn't seem to be able to do the job. And he said, we'll have to have the aid of a power greater than human power. And he said, I've been attending meetings with a group of people called the Oxford Groupers. And they told me if I could have a spiritual experience, that during that spiritual experience I would be able to find that power and I would be able to recover from alcoholism. He said, also, they have given me a practical program of action. And they guaranteed me if I would follow that program of action, I would have the spiritual experience, I would find the power, and I would be able to recover from alcoholism. And he said, look at me, Bill. It's been two months since I've had a drink. Now, Bill knew about Eddie Thatcher, and he knew how Eddie drank. In fact, Bill had always said, if I ever get as bad as Eddie Thatcher, I'm going to quit drinking. <laughs> And here's Ebby sitting in Bill's kitchen, and Bill is about two-thirds drunk, and Ebby's been sober for two months. This made a great impression on Bill when he told him of the solution, the vital spiritual experience, and he told him of the practical program of action necessary 
to have that spiritual experience. But that isn't everything Bill had to know. Let's go a little further. He said he had, he had also been greatly helped by the, by the late Dr. William D. Silkworth, a New York specialist in alcoholism, who is now kind of no less than a medical saint by AA members, and whose story of, her, of the early days of our society appears in the next pages. And from this doctor, the broker learned the great nature of alcoholism. Again, as we get into Bill's story, we'll be able to see how as far back as the summer of 1933, Bill was placed in the town's hospital for withdrawal from alcohol by Dr. Silkworth. And after he had been in there a few days and his mind kind of cleared up, Dr. Silkworth sat down with Bill and began to explain to him his ideas about this thing concerning alcoholism. And he said, Bill, I do not believe that alcoholism is a matter of willpower. I do not believe it's a matter of moral character. And I don't think sin's got anything to do with it. He said, I believe people like you are suffering from an illness. And he said, it seems to be a very peculiar illness. It's a twofold illness. An illness of the body as well as an illness of the mind. And he said, I think what has happened to people like you is you have become absolutely physically allergic to alcohol. And it seemed to me as though any time you put any alcohol whatsoever into your system, it develops an actual physical craving which makes it virtually impossible for you to stop drinking after you have once started. And he said because of that allergy which produces that physical craving, you'll never be able to safely drink alcohol again. And he said, you also have developed what we refer to as an obsession of the mind. And he said, an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all other ideas to the contrary. And he said, it really doesn't make any difference how badly you want to stop drinking. From time to time, your obsession of the mind to drink will be so strong that it will overcome any ideas not to drink and your mind will actually lead you to believing it's okay to take a drink. And he said, then you will take that drink, and then you will trigger that allergy, and you'll be unable to stop. He said, you can't safely drink because of your body. You can't stay sober because of your mind. Therefore, you've become absolutely powerless over alcohol. Now, Bill knew that in the summer of 1933, but knowing the problem didn't solve it. Because if shortly after that, his mind told him it was okay to drink. And he took a drink and triggered the allergy and drank for another year. In the summer of 1934, he was placed back in the hospital again to be withdrawn from alcohol by Dr. Silkworth. And this time, Dr. Silkworth pronounced him incurable and told Bill's wife, Lois, that this guy is either going to die from DTs or he's going to become completely insane from a wet brain and you're going to have to lock him up or hire a bodyguard if you expect him to live. And Bill overheard that, and he said this time fear sobered him for a bit. But then on Armistice Day, 1934, his mind told him it was okay to drink. And he took a drink and triggered the allergy and couldn't stop drinking. It's only after Eddie came to see him and gave him a solution to that problem and gave him a program of action that Bill was able to recover. So basically, he had to know three things. He had to know the problem. He got that from Dr. Silkworth. He had to know the solution and the program of action. That came to him from Eddie. 
And then Bill was able to have his spiritual experience and recover from alcoholism. And Abby began to take Bill to these Oxford group meetings after that. And he says, though he could not accept all the tenets of the Oxford group, he was convinced of the need of moral inventory, confession of personality defects, <clears throat> restitution of those harmed, helpless to others, and the necessity of belief in and dependence upon God, which were the tenets of the Oxford group, which were later on expanded into the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, prior to his journey to Akron, the broker had worked hard with many alcoholics on the theory that only an alcoholic could help an alcoholic, but he succeeded only in keeping sober himself. After Bill got out of the hospital that last time, he began to try to help other, other people. He began to go out and, and send them up out of the gutters and take them to these Oxford group meetings. He began to go into the bars and drag them off a bar stool and take them to the Oxford group meetings. Most of them didn't want to go, but he was taking them anyhow. <laughs> He's trying to sober up the world. He had lots of enthusiasm. But after a few months of trying to do this, why, nobody was staying sober but Bill. And he went to Lois and he said, Lois, I'm trying to help these people, these alcoholics stay sober. Nobody seems to want to stay sober. And he said, well, she said, why don't you go talk to Dr. Silkworth and see what he has to say. So he went over to talk to Dr. Silkworth and told him the same story. And Dr. Silkworth said, yes, I've heard some of the shenanigans you're pulling out there on the streets. He said, you know, Bill, you're staying sober, so obviously trying to help other people is helping you stay sober. And he said, you're talking to those drunks about that great spiritual experience that you had, and the drunks just won't accept that. He said, why don't you do for them what I did for you? Why don't you talk to them about the illness of alcoholism? Talk to them about the physical allergy and the obsession of the mind. Show them through your experience how that worked for you. And if they will accept that, then maybe you can talk to them about spiritual matters. He said, Bill, every alcoholic I know has two questions. Number one, why can't I drink like I used to without getting drunk all the time? And number two, why can't I quit drinking now that I want to? And he said, if you will explain to them the exact nature of the illness, tell them about the physical allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind, you'll get their attention. And he said, then after you get their attention, you can talk to them about spirituality, but tell them what the problem is first. Our book said the broker had gone to Akron on a business venture which had collapsed, leaving him greatly in fear that he might start drinking again. He suddenly realized that in order to save himself, he must carry his message to another alcoholic. And that alcoholic turned out to be the Akron physician. We all know the story of Bill going to Akron. He and some other guys had put a business deal together. They're going to take over one of the companies there in Akron just through a proxy fight. And while there, the whole thing blew up in their face, and his friends all deserted him and left him there in Akron, standing in the lobby of the Mayflower Hotel, low, sad, and depressed, counting the money in his pocket, realized he didn't even have enough money to pay his hotel bill. He happened to look through a door off the lobby into the bar, and I would assume probably the lights were low in the bar, the music was probably playing in the bar. The laughter was great and the smoke was thick. And Bill's mind said, I believe I'll go in there and be with people of my kind. And I'll feel better. And as he started through the door, his mind began to think about taking a drink. And Bill suddenly realized that if he went in that bar, he was going to end up drunk. But he remembered how back in New York City, every time he'd tried to help another alcoholic, even though he had failed with them, Every time he had tried, he himself had felt better. So he said to himself, what I better do is find me a drunk here in Akron to talk to. 
made a few phone calls, came in contact with a lady named Henrietta Cyberly. And Henrietta said, yeah, I know a guy that you can talk to. said, let me call him and see if I can't set up a meeting for you. So she calls Dr. Bob's house and got hold of Ann Smith, Bob's wife, and said, there's a fellow here from New York City that says he may have a possible means that Dr. Bob could recover from alcoholism. Can you bring Dr. Bob over for a visit? And Ann said, well, I'd like to. But she said, you know, this is the day before Mother's Day, and he brought me home a potted plant, and it's sitting on the table, and he's potted underneath the table. <laughs> she said, let me wait until the morning and see if I can get him to come over. So, of course, the next morning, as soon as Dr. Bob woke up, she set in on him to go over to Henrietta's and see this guy and talk to this guy from New York City. Now, you know Dr. Bob didn't feel very good the next morning. <laughs> Hung over and felt bad, and he said, I'm not going. And Ann kept after him and kept after him and kept after him, and finally, finally, Dr. Bob said, I'll go over there and give that guy 15 minutes of my time, and then I'm coming back home. So Ann took him over there, and Bill and Bob went into a room by themselves, and they stayed in that room for literally hours. And Dr. Bob came out of that room and he said, this is the first man I've ever met that knows what he's talking about when he talks about alcoholism. Let's see what happened to him. He said the physician had repeatedly tried spiritual means to resolve his alcohol dilemma, but it failed. Bill was surprised to find out Dr. Bob was already in the Oxford groups. He knew more about the solution, the spiritual experience, and the program of action that Bill knew. But he had never been able to apply it to the depth necessary to recover, because he didn't know what was wrong with him. You see, he thought it was willpower. He thought it was moral character. He thought it was sin. Why would he not? That's what everybody had told him up until that time. And what really interested him was the message that Bill had to carry regarding the problem, not the solution, not the program of action, but what alcohol, alcoholism really consists of. He said that when the broker gave him Dr. Silkworth's description of alcoholism and his hopelessness, the physician began to pursue the spiritual remedy with a malady for his malady with a willingness he had never before been able to muster. He sobered never to drink again up to the moment of his death in 1950. You know, Bill went in there this time for the first time. He began to talk to Dr. Bob about the allergy to alcoholism. <clears throat> he told him that every time he would go down by the bar, and had every intention to have a drink or two, he, he would drink more than he intended to, he'd drink more that night or the next day, and, and he'd be off and running again. And he said this Dr. Silkworth had told him that, that that was a physical allergy that caused him to want to crave more drinks after he took a drink. And Dr. Bob said, well, yes, I drink just like that. You know, I, you, you really know what you're talking about. That's the way I drink, too. I would want to have one or two drinks, and the next thing I know is I drank three, four, five, ten, or fifteen, or twenty, and didn't know how I got started. He said, do you call that a physical allergy? He said, that's right. And he said, another thing, he said, when I'm not drinking, when I'm sober, I have, I have these thoughts that I want to drink all the time. It's always on my mind. And Dr. Silkworth said that's the obsession of the mind, that we're obsessed with the idea to drink. And Dr. Bob said, well, I, I have those same kind of thoughts. You really know what you're talking about. So they reached a report through the illness of alcoholism and explained it in great detail. And Dr. Bob said, that's me. That's just the way I drink. You really know what you're talking about. So they had some identification going. You know, this is the first time that Bill had tried this. 
Everybody back in New York City, he'd always talk to them about the solution, the great spiritual experience, the big white flash he had had in the town's hospital. But he sat down with Dr. Bob. He didn't talk to Dr. Bob at all about Dr. Bob's drinking either. I'm sure that's what Dr. Bob expected to hear. Everybody else had talked to him about his drinking. But Bill said, let me tell you about my drinking. And through the sharing of his story, talking about his own allergy, Dr. Bob could see himself immediately in it. Through the sharing of his own story, talking about his obsession of the mind, Dr. Bob could see himself immediately in it. And he could see where he had become absolutely powerless over alcohol. And for the first time, he was completely defeated when it comes to alcohol. Then he began to apply the little program of action to a depth he had never been able to do before. Then he had a spiritual experience, and he recovered from alcoholism too. Now this seemed to prove that one alcoholic could affect another, as no non-alcoholic could. You know, through the sharing of our story with a new person, we can affect them as no non-alcoholic could because we have immediate identification about the physical allergy, about the obsession of the mind, about the way we think and the things that we do. It also indicated that strenuous work, one alcoholic with another, was vital to permanent recovery. Remember, Bill was about to get drunk, and he really didn't go see Dr. Bob to sober up Dr. Bob. He went to see Dr. Bob to keep Bill Wilson from drinking. So it proved that night that working with another alcoholic was vital for our own recovery, too. Now, immediately, one of the Oxford group tenants was, you got to give it away if you're going to keep it. So immediately, they made a decision, we're going to have to find us another alcoholic to talk to. And Dr. Bob called the Akron City Hospital, where he was, uh, where he was actually working at that time, talked to the head nurse and said, do you have an alcoholic down there that we can come and talk to? We believe we found a way to help them overcome alcoholism. And she said, oh yeah. Said, we've got a real one down here. Said, he's just blacked both eyes of one of the nurses. Said, we got him tied down in bed. And Dr. Bob said, put him in a private room. We'll be down in the morning to see him. And she said, okay. And by the way, Dr. Bob, have you tried this on yourself? <laughs> so the next morning they go down to see this fellow. He's named Bill Dotson. And you see the, the picture in AA rooms all over the world of the man on the bed. And this is Bill and Bob sitting there talking to Bill Dotson. Now they didn't talk to Bill Dotson about Bill Dotson's drinking. They talked to him about their own drinking. And through the sharing of their stories, Bill Dotson could immediately see what his problem was. See, he had never known about the allergy and the obsession of the mind. He could accept the fact that he was absolutely powerless over alcohol, and he would have to have the aid of a power greater than himself in order to recover. They began to talk to him about the need for the spiritual experience, how they had found that necessary to apply those things in their lives in order to recover. They told him how they applied the little program of action and the results that they got. Two days later, Bill Dotson said to his wife, Get my clothes out of the closet. I'm going home. And he gets up and he dresses and he goes home and he starts applying the program of action. And lo and behold, he had a vital spiritual experience and he recovered from alcoholism also. Now this makes three of them. In the summer of 1935 in Akron, 
They all three know the problem. They all three know the solution. They've all three applied the program of action. They've had a spiritual experience, and they have recovered from alcoholism. So this work continued. This work at Akron continued through the summer of 1935. There were many failures, but there was an occasional heartening success. You know, we always give credit to Bill and Bob in the first 100, which rightly we should. But if we would go back and think about that summer of 1935, these guys really had—they didn't have much idea about what they were doing. They had found a few simple things that had worked for them, and they would try this on many, many different people that summer. And if it worked, then they would keep it, and if something didn't work, they might discard that. Learning as they went through that summer, working with people. I know one of Dr. Bob's favorite things was to fill them up with sour kraut juice mixed with honey. He knew that there was vitamins in that sour kraut juice that would help the body, and of course the honey was a form of energy. And they tried that amongst many different things. And every once in a while, one of these guys would fall over dead. And I can almost see Bill turn to Bob and say, oh shit, let's go do that again. You know? I think maybe we ought to give credit to those they failed with that summer, too. They, they probably learned more from their failures than they did from their successes. So when the broker returned to New York in the fall of 1935, the first AA group had actually been formed, though no one realized it at the time. You know, this little group of uh, alcoholics that was going to the Oxford group, you know, they were having troubles with the Oxford group because the Oxford groups had four absolutes. And the drunks were having trouble being absolutely anything, as we well know. They couldn't practice that. And it seemed like that these drunks liked to stand off in the corner someplace and drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and tell stories, not necessarily mix, mix in with the other Oxford group meeting members. So they began to call them the drunk squad of the Oxford group. And that's what they liked, to separate themselves from the normal uh, Oxford group members. The book says the second small group had promptly taken shape at New York. When Bill went back to New York City, he began to apply there what he had learned in Akron. Instead of talking about spirituality, he talked to the new people there about the exact nature of the illness. And sure enough, he got their attention. Some of them began to respond, and a second little group started in New York City. And besides, there were scattered alcoholics who had picked up the basic ideas in Akron or New York and were trying to form AA groups in other cities. By late 1937, the number of members having substantial sobriety time behind them was sufficient to convince the membership that a new light had entered the dark world of the alcoholic. In the summer of 1937, Bill was back in Akron, again on a business venture, and he decided to go by and see Dr. Bob and see how things were going in Akron. And they sat down in Dr. Bob's kitchen and they counted the number of people they knew that were staying sober based on these three little pieces of information. And they found approximately 40 people sober. And I think that it's the first time that they really begin to realize maybe we really have found the answer to this thing called alcoholism. And if we found the answer, then we need to get it to as many alcoholics as we possibly can. So the question immediately becomes, well, what's the best way to do that? And maybe this is the beginning of the group conscience, because Bill and Bob decided they didn't want to make that decision themselves. It was too important. 
and they called a meeting of the Oxford group there in Akron. And at that meeting that night, there was 18 people there, some alcoholic, some non-alcoholic. And the topic of conversation was, how can we best carry this message of recovery to the greatest number of people? Now, they decided that night to do three things. In those days, you could hardly get a, an alcoholic in a hospital for detoxification. Any doctor that put one in there had to lie about their condition. Alcoholism wasn't very popular in the 1930s, that's for sure. So they decided, now remember, this is in the midst of the Depression now in 1932. Nobody has a dime, hardly at all. And they decided what they needed to do was to build a chain of hospitals stretching all the way across the United States where any alcoholic that needed it would be able to have detoxification. I would assume Dr. Bob was going to be the head doctor. They also felt that this little message of recovery they had was so vital that not everybody could be entrusted with carrying it correctly. So they decided they needed to hire a group of individuals, train them, and then let them spread out across the United States, more or less as missionaries, to carry this message of recovery. I would assume Bill Wilson was going to be the head missionary, too. <laughs> then they said, you know, the Oxford groups have written a lot of books, spiritual in nature, and they've been very popular. Back in the 1930s, people read a lot of books. This was in the days before television. There really was a time before television, believe me, there was. And they felt that if they could come up with a book on alcoholism, what it is and the solution to it and, and a way to bring that about, the first comprehensive book on alcoholism the world had ever seen, that then surely this book would become one of the world's greatest bestsellers. And they can take the profits from the book and build the hospitals and train the missionaries. That was one reason behind the book. But I think the main reason behind the book was that they had already noticed carrying this message one-on-one, -on -one, one person to another, that it already had begun to be changed. And you know how people are. When we hear something good, well, we like to repeat it. But we'll usually add just a little bit to it. And then the next one will add a little more and a little more and a little more, and after a while it doesn't resemble the first thing. And they said, what we really need to do is take these three pieces of information about the problem, the solution, and a program of action, put it down in a written form, where it will no longer be changed, no longer be garbled, and any alcoholic anywhere in the world in the future would have this same information and it would be pure. And they made the decision that night to write the big book Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, thank God, only one of the three things they decided that night came true. They never did get to build the hospitals, because the book didn't make very much money in the, beginning, in the beginning. They didn't get to hire and train the missionaries, but they did get to write the book. So this determination bore fruit in the spring of 1939 by the publication of this volume. The membership had then reached about 100 men and women. And after they wrote the book, they sat down one night at the meeting and they were trying to determine uh, what they're going to call the book. They, didn't, they needed a title for the book. Someone said, well, let's call it The Way Out. That sounds like a pretty good name for a book. They did some research on that some later and they found out there were some 10 or 12 other books called The Way Out, so they discarded that.
somebody else suggested, well, let's call it Comes the Dawn. Now, that sounds like a pretty good title for a book. And they discussed that a while and kicked that around and decided not to do that. Somebody said, let's call it A Hundred Men. Now, that really sounds like a good name of a book. Well, then a woman joined the group. Well, they couldn't call it A Hundred Men and a Woman. So they discarded that idea. Bill, Bill suggested that, hey, let's call it the Bill W. Movement. They discussed that about five minutes and kicked that out. And then one evening someone suggested that, uh, that we're alcoholics and we want to remain anonymous. How about Anonymous Alcoholics or Al Alcoholics Anonymous? That caught on. And that's, so that's what they call the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And the first Alcoholics Anonymous that the world has ever seen was a book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says here, this fledgling society, this drunk squad of the Oxford group, which had been nameless now, began to be called Alcoholics Anonymous from the title of its own book. So we have two Alcoholics Anonymous, don't we? We have a book entitled Alcoholics Anonymous, and then we have a fellowship entitled Alcoholics Anonymous. Two AAs, and we still have that today. Now, I think this is very important for us to think about. This group of people who had been nameless who had been known as the Drunk Squad of the Oxford Groups, wrote a book, and in that book they put their program of recovery, and they called the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And after the book was published, they then decided to call themselves Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, in 1939, the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and the program in the fellowship Alcoholics Anonymous were exactly the same. The book then began to go out across the United States. And the first person out here in California got a copy of this book, read it, studied it, did what it said, recovered from alcoholism, started a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. The first person in Arkansas got a copy of this book, read it, studied, did what it said, recovered, started a group called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now the growth of the fellowship began to come from the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Now as the fellowship began to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger, they began to notice something that the first 100 didn't have. They began to notice the great power of a fellowship of people who have escaped from a common problem. Now, the first 100 didn't have that. They only had 100 people, period. But the fellowship, as it grew and got bigger and bigger and bigger, and they began to experience the power of fellowship, they then began to question the need for the severity of the program in the book. And they said, do you mean we really have to turn all of our will and our life over to the care of God as we understand it? Couldn't we give him the drinking and keep the rest? Do you mean we're going to have to share all of our life story with another human being? Hell, God already knows about it. We know about it. Why tell somebody else? They begin to say, you mean we have to have God remove all of our character defects? Hell, we won't have any personality left if he does. <laughs> and they begin to talk about, do you mean we have to make amends to all those people we've harmed? And they begin to say such things as, well, maybe we don't need to do every bit of that. Maybe we could take some of it and leave some of it. Maybe we can do it cafeteria style. 
pick what we want and leave that that we don't want. And then along about that time came the great advent of the treatment centers. Now please don't get us wrong, we have nothing against the treatment center. They serve a worthwhile purpose. But in the treatment centers, people begin to hear some other type of words and some other languages. They begin to go into a group therapy thing, and they begin to sit around the tables and talk about their problems, and they begin to develop such terms as the dysfunctional family. And they begin to use such words as chemical dependency. And they begin to talk about significant others. And they begin to discuss meaningful relationships. And they begin to talk about dysfunctional sex. And they begin to talk about this and they begin to talk about that. And the program in the treatment center wasn't like the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, naturally, the new people from the treatment centers coming into AA wanted to talk about what they knew to talk about is what they had learned in other places. And slowly, 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 the program and the fellowship began to change. And as the years went by, it began to change more and more and more. Until today, sometimes you go to an AA meeting, and if they didn't read the preamble before the meeting, you wouldn't know what kind of meeting you're in because they talk about everything except alcoholism and recovery therefrom. We like to refer to those meetings as group depression meetings. <laughs> you go in there feeling pretty good. Halfway through the meeting, you might as well just go ahead and blow, blow your brains out. Hell, it's not even worth living any longer. So what we're going to talk about this weekend is not the program in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous today. We're going to talk about the program in the book Alcoholics Anonymous that the first 100 used, which has never been changed. Now, the program in the fellowship has definitely changed. The program in the book has never changed. Let's go to Roman numeral 20. Let's see how effective this thing used to be when the program in the book and the program in the fellowship were the same. So while the, in in the internal difficulties of our adolescent period were being ironed out, public acceptance grew by, of AA grew by leaps and bounds. For this, there were two principal reasons, the large number of recoveries and reunited homes. Now, these made their impressions everywhere. Of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sobered once and remained that way. 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. Other thousands came to a few AA meetings at first decided they didn't want the program, but great numbers of these, about two out of three, began to return as time passed. If my math is correct, that's 75% of those people who came to AA in the early days and worked the program was in the book, stayed sober, eventually. I don't know in my area, I don't know what it's like in your area, but we, we can't talk about 75%. We can't talk about 50%. We can't talk about 25%. I doubt if we could talk about 10%, truthfully. And I really, the reason for that, I believe, is that the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous got away from the program that's in a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and that worked. And so what we're going to do this weekend, is, as Charlie said, we're going to talk about the fellowship that's in the program called Alcoholics Anonymous, and we're going to ask each and every one of you to go back to your groups and listen to the conversation that you hear around the tables and see how closely it tallies with the program that's in the book 
called Alcoholics Anonymous. And if it doesn't, we suggest you do something about it. That's our charge to you this weekend. You know, a lot of we older. A lot of we older members of Alcoholics Anonymous tend to blame this problem on the newcomer. <laughs> the newcomer comes in here and they want to talk about the only thing they know to talk about. And too many of we older members have said, well, we can't identify with those people anymore, so we're just going to stay home. And we do. We've abdicated our responsibility for Alcoholics Anonymous. We've turned it over to the sickest of the sickest, who are the newcomers. And then we stand back and say, look what they're doing to RAA. Now, I think that's our responsibility, to be sure that every newcomer that walks in the door, that we tell them that stuff you've learned, wherever you learned it, is probably good information. But that is not AA information. Here's AA information. And we start talking about the program of recovery in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And we take them by the hand, and we lead them through this program of recovery so they can have a spiritual awakening also. I think they call that sponsorship, and that's sorely, sorely lacking in AA today. But I think that's our responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the new people. It's the responsibility of we older members. And we need to stand up and stand pat and insist that in our meetings we talk about alcoholism, recovery therefrom, the program in the book. And I'll just bet you we can see more people recover from alcoholism. Probably never will get back to 75%, but we can certainly do better than we're doing today. And we're not going to preach anymore. That's all the preaching for this entire weekend, I guarantee you. hope you don't believe that. <laughs> Now that we know a little bit about the history, let's go back to the table of contents. Let's look at it for just a moment, and let's see if we can't see the same pattern in this book that the first 100 used. Do all of you have one of these little folders like this? Okay, we're going to put a picture up here on this screen, and I know some of you are hard to be able to see it at all from its location, but you'll have a picture in that book which will match it if you can't see it. You know, I'm, I'm in the printing business, and I have been all my life, and I I print books like this. I've been in conversation with many people on how... And when I started reading this book, Alcoholics, and I guess I must have had brain damage or something, but uh, it never dawned on me that this book was laid out in any particular way. After all, a bunch of alcoholics wrote it, so what would they know about laying out a book, I thought, so I didn't pay attention to that. Come to find out, though, this book has had, they've had lots of good information, lots of good help with laying out this book. This book is laid out in a particular manner to bring about certain ideas. Each chapter is very, very important. Each page is very, very important. Each paragraph is very, very important. One paragraph leads to the next, and the information in that paragraph and that page leads to the next. And that's the way it goes in this book, I'll call it. Everything is important, and it's laid out in a certain sequence to bring about certain ideas. Most books have three particular goals, especially this one does. And the first goal in this book, it tells us what the problem is. That's the goal number one. And they're going to use the doctor's opinion, Bill's story, basically to tell us what the problem is. And then the second goal is going to be the solution. They're going to give us a solution to the problem that they described. And they know we're going to have problems with that solution, just like they did. So they're going to talk chapter two, there is a solution. Chapter three, more about alcoholism. 
the solution has to do with spiritual matters, and they know that we're going to have some of those problems. So they wrote down chapter 4 called We Agnostics, for those of us who had problems in that area. And then the, the third goal is to actions necessary for recovery. And beginning, in, and we're going to begin with how it works in chapter 5. And, uh, and chapter 6 is into action. Chapter 7 is working with others. So this book is laid out in particular reasons to bring about certain ideas all the way across, all the way through the book. And that helped me in study the book. I hear people today talking about going to a step study meeting. And they're always referring to studying the steps out of the 12 and 12. But if you'll notice that these chapters correspond with the steps also. And any time you're studying the big book, you're studying the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. In that doctor's opinion and Bill's story, we're going to see nearly all the information, a little bit of it in chapter 2 and 3, but most of it will be in the doctor's opinion and Bill's story. We'll be able to see everything that we need to in order to see what our problem really is. And we'll be able to see where we're absolutely powerless over alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. And really that's step one. Step one, if we wanted to boil it down to just one word, would be powerless. Then we can, when we can see that powerless condition, then obviously the answer to that's going to be power. And remember, Eddie told Bill it has to be the aid of a power greater than human power. So through chapters 2, 3, and 4, we're going to be able to see that power, and we're going to get some new information about spirituality, so we'll be able to come to believe that maybe that power could help us also. And there we're dealing with step 2. That's the power. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, if we know we're powerless, and we know we need the power, then the only other thing we need to know is how do you find that power? And that's what chapters 5, 6, and 7 are about. There we will see the last ten steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if we follow them, we will have a spiritual awakening, we will have found the power, and we're no longer powerless over alcohol. I read this book for years before I saw that sequence. The same identical sequence that Bill and Bob in the first 100 had to know. What is the problem? Step one. What is the solution? Step two. What is the program of action necessary to find it? Steps three through 12. Now you begin to study the book in this manner, it becomes a very fascinating book to see how each chapter ties into the next chapter to convey these certain ideas in the proper sequence. Table of contents. Okay, let's go over for just a few moments to the preface, Roman numeral 11. And the second paragraph on Roman numeral 11. Because this book has become the basic text for our society and has helped such large numbers of alcoholic men and women to recovery, there exists a sentiment against any radical changes being made in it. Therefore, the first portion of this volume describing the AA recovery program has been left untouched in the course of revisions made for both the second and third editions. And I think there's two ideas there. First, when we see the words basic text, I think we're alerted to the type of book we have in front of us. All kinds of books in the world today, you've got novels, Novels written on fact, novels written on fiction, biographies, autobiographies, concordances, many kind of books. 
But we also have a book called a textbook. And many of us don't have very fond memories of textbooks. Every time I saw the word textbook, all I could think about was cheat. <laughs> I don't know why. Remember about how back in school when we used a textbook, you had to read and study and do things you didn't want to do, take tests and all that kind of jazz. Lots of work involved in it. And for some people in AA today, the very idea of a textbook just completely turns them off. But if you would take a textbook in its simplest form, Really all it is is a means of taking information from the mind of one human or a group of human beings, put it down in the written word, then transfer that information to the mind of another human being who's using the textbook. And that's all teaching is. A lot of people today say you can't teach in AA. I don't see why you can't. Teaching is nothing more than transferring information from the mind of one person to the mind of another, increasing the knowledge of the one who's being taught. We all teach every day, and we're all being taught every day. I don't see how in the world we could ever sponsor and help anybody if we couldn't teach them what we already know. And that's what a textbook does, too. A textbook usually assumes that the reader of the book will have very little knowledge of the subject matter. It normally starts at a very simple level. Then as the knowledge of the reader increases, the material presented becomes more difficult. The idea of a textbook on mathematics. Let's say my friend Joe here knows nothing at all about mathematics. He can't add, he can't subtract, he can't do any of those things. Oh, he can count. In fact, he could probably count to 21 if he's standing there naked and got everything where it belongs. He, he might make 21. 20 and a half, actually. <laughs> And if I handed him a textbook on mathematics and I said, Joe, I want you to go to chapter 5 and work the algebra problems, well, being a good fellow, he would go to chapter 5 and look at them, but he can't even add and subtract. Uh, they just look like marks on paper to him. But if I say, Joe, chapter 1 in this textbook on mathematics deals with the value of numbers in addition and subtraction. If you'll read it and study it and let me help you, by the time you're through with chapter 1, you'll know how to add and subtract. And sure enough, he learns how to do that. And then I say, now let's go to chapter 2. Based on what you've learned in 1, you can go to chapter 2 and learn how to multiply and divide. And sure enough, he does that. And then I say, now you can go to chapter 3, and you can learn, you can learn fractions and decimals. And we gradually prepare his mind for the new information in chapter 5. I think the greatest mistake being made in AA today newcomer comes to the door, we hand them the book, and we say, go to chapter 5 and do what it says and you'll be okay. And they go to chapter 5 and they run into a series of algebra problems. Step 1 said we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, our lives have become unmanageable. The newcomer said, man, I'm not powerless over anything. They have no idea what we mean by that statement. Step 2 said came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. The newcomer said, don't tell me I'm crazy. Yeah, I do stupid things when I'm drunk, but when I'm sober, I'm like other people. They have no idea what we mean by that statement. But if you're not powerless and you're not nuts, then you don't need step three to be thinking about turning your will and your life over to care of something you don't understand in the first place. We present them with an impossible situation. If we can do nothing else this weekend, I hope we're going to be able to get over the idea of the value of the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters. There is where we learn what the problem is. 
There's where we learn what the solution is. That prepares us for chapter 5. You see, chapter 5 starts with step 3. And it's very difficult to start with 3 unless you've got 1 and 2 behind you. Hopefully we'll be able to see that. I think the other thing that is so important, there exists a cinema against any radical changes being made in it. The first edition of the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and by the way, this happens to be a second printing of it. You'll notice how big this second printing is. Uh, the actual lettering size is the same as your book today, but you'll also notice that it had very wide margins on the pages. The alcoholic mind says the bigger the book, the better it'll sell. So that's why they call it a big book. It's a big book. They printed it on the thickest, the cheapest old paper they could find. Cheap paper's thick is real thick. And you'll notice how thick this book actually is. doesn't say a bit more than the book does today. But you know that actually the thicker it is, certainly the more money it's worth. I think I can see their ideas behind some of this. What really amazes me is you notice the color on the dust jacket. I can just see some alcoholic in New York City walking down the street with this under his arm trying to remain anonymous. <laughs> the brighter the color, the quicker it catches the eye and the better it's going. I can see Bill Wilson all the way through this book, real calm. <laughs> the first printing came out in 1939. By 1955, the fellowship had changed. The stories in the back of the book were there for the newcomer to be able to identify with. In 55, since bottom had come up, age had come down, more and more women coming in, they said, we need to change those stories in the back of the book. So in 1955, they deleted some stories, added some more, came out with a second edition, but the recovery section remained the same. 1976, they did the same thing. Deleted some stories in the back of the book, added some more, came out with a third edition, but the recovery section remained the same. And I think what's so important for me today is whether I'm reading a first, second, or third edition, we have never changed the recovery section. I wonder why we've never found it necessary to change it. Because it works, doesn't it? Yeah, you betcha. And why does it work? Uh, three reasons, I think. Alcoholics haven't changed a bit. They still get drunk. They get in jailhouses, they get in divorce courts, they get in knife fights, they get in gun battles, they get in car wrecks, they get in penitentiaries, they get in cemeteries. They're still doing the same fun things today they did back in 1939. <laughs> haven't changed a lick. Alcohol hasn't changed. The names have changed, the bottles have changed, the colors have changed, but alcohol is the same thing today it was in 1939. Human nature never changes. It's the same today as it was in 2,000 years ago. And that's what this book deals with. It deals with alcoholics, alcoholism, and human nature. Therefore, we've never found it necessary to change it. I think that's probably one of the greatest miracles of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know how we love to change things. Everybody that's ever read it certainly has rewritten it at least twice in their minds. Collectively, though, we've never found it necessary, Joe. Let's go to the forward to the first edition, Roman numeral page 13. He said, we, and I think that's probably the largest word in Alcoholics Anonymous, we can do what I can't do. We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. They're already beginning to tell us again as to what the problem is. It's a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, 
and a little later on tonight we're going to separate those two ideas the, the body from the mind to talk about them in great detail and it says to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book you notice that the word precisely how we have recovered is in italics Charlie would have you to believe that's uh, squiggly writing it isn't it's italics <laughs> squiggly writing yeah and anytime you see squiggly oh, excuse, you got me doing it now Anytime you see italics in this book, it becomes very, very important. Probably ought to read it again. And it says precisely. Later on in the book, we're going to find words such as specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions. So this book is not a book on just about how to recover from alcoholism. This book is going to tell us precisely, specifically, exactly, with clear-cut directions on how to recover from alcoholism. And if I want to recover from alcoholism, guess what? I need to do it precisely, specifically, and exactly, and try to follow the clear-cut direction as best I can. Otherwise, I may not recover from alcoholism. I think we see a couple of things here that's extremely important. First, we are more than 100 men and women. Most books that I read have been authored by one person. And when I read a book authored by one person, if I see something in there, I don't agree with it. In my keen intellectual alcoholic mind, I usually say, who in the hell are they to think they're smarter than I am? And I just ignore it. But I've got to realize with the big book that if I'm going to argue with it, I'm going to be arguing with 100 people, not one. The first 40 said, Bill, we want you to write the book. You know more about it than anybody else. You've been sober longer than anybody else, which, by the way, was just a little over three years at that time. But they said, Bill, this is not to be your book. It's to be our book. And as you write those chapters, we want to see them. And we will add to, delete from, and change around whatever we want to. When we're through with it, it'll be the collective knowledge, experience, and wisdom of all 40 of us. By the time the book was published, that 40 had changed to, to 100. So if I'm going to argue with it today, I'm going to be arguing with 100 men and women, not just one person. And it's going to be 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, which brings in the word recovered. I hear people argue about this all over the world. Can you recover from alcoholism? Well, the book says you can. It said the first 100 had recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Now, I'll never be cured of alcoholism. I will always have the physical allergy. I'll never be able to safely drink alcohol again. But before I came to AA, not only could I not drink it safely, but I couldn't keep from drinking it. And the result, in fact, was I lived in an absolutely hopeless state of mind and body. And I came to AA, and I applied the program of action in this book, and I no longer live in that hopeless state of mind and body. I still can't drink, but by golly, I can stay sober. I'll never be cured of alcoholism, but I have recovered from the state of mind and body known as alcoholism. And you're going to see the word recovered and recovering all the way through the book several times. I think that's important. The other thing that is so important is to show other alcoholics precisely how we have done that. You know, if I, uh, if I went to an AA potluck meeting, and let's say you, you've made a strawberry cake, which happens to be my favorite kind of cake. Just in case you're going to make it. If you ever make me one, that's the kind I like. 
And I bite into that cake, and God, it's just perfect. The texture's right, the taste is right, everything is just right about it. And I say, who made this cake? Well, you'll probably say, I did. And I'll say, would you tell me how? And you say, yeah, I'll be glad to. And you'll sit down and write out for me a precise, specific, clear-cut set of directions on how to make that cake. You'll tell me the ingredients to put in it, the quantity of the ingredients, the sequence in which to, to mix them together, the temperature at which to bake it, and how long to bake it. Now, if I take your instructions in my kitchen, and I follow them precisely as you've laid them out, when that thing comes out of the oven and cools off and I bite into it, I think I can expect it to taste exactly like your cake tasted. But if I get your directions in my kitchen, and my keen intellectual alcoholic mind starts working, it may say, well, now I'm not sure about six eggs. Maybe we ought to just put four in there. Instead of two cups of sugar, I believe it would be better with three. Instead of baking at 375, surely four and a quarter would be better. Instead of baking it for 18 minutes, I need to bake it for 25. Now, when it comes out of the oven and I bite into it, you betcha, I'm going to be biting in a piece of cake. But I wonder how closely it would resemble your cake, which was my reason for making it in the first place. A precise, specific, clear-cut set of directions on how to recover from alcoholism. We've been around AA long enough to know and fully understand. You can't make anybody do anything that they don't want to in AA. The only requirement for membership in Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire to stop drinking. You can stand up in an AA meeting and say, I don't like you people at all. Can hardly drink your lousy old coffee. And every time I read you 12 steps, I vomit. And I'm going to be a member of AA because I've got a desire to stay sober and nobody can say a word about that. But that's dealing with membership and the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If you want to recover from alcoholism, there are some things you're probably going to have to do. And that's what this book deals with. It doesn't deal with membership and the fellowship. It deals with recovery from alcoholism. And if we will do as these first 100 did, then surely we can expect to receive what they got, recovery from a hopeless condition of mind and body known as alcoholism. Now, book says, for them, we hope these pages will prove so convincing that no further authentication be necessary. We think this account of our experiences will help everyone better understand the alcoholic. Many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. And besides, we're sure our way of living has its advantages for all. In that statement, many do not comprehend that the alcoholic is a very sick person. Very important to me. Because when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I used to stand in the back of the rooms and I looked down at my feet and I was ashamed. And I had become everything I detested in a human being. Certainly, thinking that I had an illness of alcoholism was not one of my thoughts. My thought was something like this. I feel like a no-good rotten SOB, and I'm guilty of everything in the world, so I must be a no-good rotten SOB, and I thought that was what alcoholism was. Turns out that it wasn't. You know, I've been married and divorced to two women seven times. <laughs> Would you repeat that? Yeah. <laughs> two of them seven times. <laughs> Phyllis only admits to, to two of them, but I divorced her once and it wasn't even my turn. <laughs> so she was three. The first one was four and this, the second was three. I'm not sure that's a record, but I'll bet it's getting pretty close well, to it. What do you think? I've heard some people beat that one. <laughs> but my first wife, she was a great old gal, and I, I used to drink and go places. I was one of those traveling drunks, you know. And I didn't come back right away either. 
They used to have a statement around my group that calls they said they that he who leaves and does not return stays gone a long time. And that was me. And from time to time I'd get drunk and go places and then I'd come home as if I'd never been away. And when I got home I looked out in the yard and all my stuff's laying out in the yard. Y'all know what I mean by stuff, don't you? Dirty under shorts, dirty shirts, unironed clothes, you know, they never throw anything that's clean and ironed. I don't know why that is. They'd file for divorce on me and put a restraining order, make off of the money, make me madder than hell. And I say, after all I'd done, to, I mean, after all I'd done for them, them treat me like that. So I, I, one time I was gone a while, and I decided I was trying to get back home, you know, and I was serious. So I went to the preacher that my wife, first wife was going to at that time and had a little conversation with him. And he said, Joe, what seems to be your problem, he asked me. And I didn't know what the problem was. If I knew what I told the man, because I was serious. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what I think the problem is, and it's her. If you live with her, you'd drink too, I said. Well, he gave me a prescription, a solution. And he said, you must, and boy, did he emphasize that word, you must have faith in these things, and he laid them out for me. Well, I couldn't have any faith in those things. You know why? Because I didn't even believe them. How can you have faith in something that you don't even believe? Thank God for the second step so I could come to believe. But that was to happen sometime later. So later on, I met and married my other wife. We met in a bar, the Zebra Lounge. I can almost smell it now. And we were introduced, and she looked at me and said, You know, Joe, you look like my third husband. I said, My God, how many of you had? And she said, Two. Yeah. Well, I liked her right away. And we started drinking and having fun and doing all those things. And then it uh, wasn't long after we got married till she started throwing my stuff out in the yard, filing for divorce on every state order. Well, this time I went to a psychiatrist and sat down and talked to him, paid him $75 an hour. And he said, Mr. McCoy, for $75 an hour, they'll call you Mr. He said, Mr. McCoy, what seems to be your problem? Well, I didn't know what the problem was. I didn't, so I told him what I thought it was. It was her and her. If you live with those two, you'd drink too, I said. Well, he gave me a prescription. He thought I had a value deficiency. <laughs> he didn't mention not drinking, so I took the volume and continued to drink, and I got into real trouble now. I mean, really trouble. I got to where I didn't know the difference between my job and the bar. I didn't know the difference between my wife and your wife and my wife and my girlfriend. I got everything all mixed up. Got into a lot of trouble. So the time I come to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous, I had become everything I detested in a human being. I did not like who I had become, and I was very, very sick. It wasn't until after I got into listening to and the description of Dr. Silkworth's opinion on alcoholism that I began to understand what I had here. And it wasn't that I was a no-good, rotten SOB. I had an illness called alcoholism. A physical allergy coupled with a session of the mind, and somehow or other that information helped me overcome some of these ideas that I had. And as I look back now, and I know more about this, you know, the very first 16 printings of this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, the doctor's opinion was on page 1. 1959, in the second edition, they moved the doctor's opinion out of the page 1 and put it in the Roman numeral sections. And you all know we don't read Roman numeral sections, do we? Who does? And I think that most of us in Alcoholics Anonymous got away from the idea of the doctor's opinion 
and just looked at Bill's story, page one. But the information in the doctor's opinion is so important to me and to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous because the rest of the book is going to tell us how to recover from the condition of the body and the mind that Dr. Silkworth described. And I said I was alcoholic for about two years, and I didn't even know what an alcoholic was, really. So let's look at the doctor's opinion in that light. We start looking at what the problem actually is, and most of us are absolutely amazed to find out what the problem is. Because most of us felt, before we came here, that it was a matter of willpower. That after all, we had enough willpower that we ought to be able to control our drinking. And we found out that willpower didn't work, then we assumed that we were just crazy. Or maybe we thought it was moral character. Or maybe we thought we were just sinful, rotten people. Now why wouldn't we think that? That's what everybody had told us up to this point. And throughout the history of humankind, they've been trying to find out for thousands of years what alcoholism is. You know, you really can't do anything about a problem till you understand the problem. And most of the people that tried to determine what alcoholism is were non-alcoholics to start with. They were the ones that said it was a lack of willpower. They said, if you'll just use your willpower like we do, you wouldn't drink that way. They're the ones that said it was moral character. They're the ones that said it was sin. We alcoholics didn't say those things. Hell, we just kept on drinking to let them worry about what it is. Alcoholism is not anything new. You'll find references to alcoholism as far back as human history is recorded. One of the oldest recordings of human history is to be found in the Bible. And in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, there's some information there about alcoholism. You know, the book of Proverbs was written by a fellow named Solomon. And you all remember Solomon was a very, very wise, very learned individual. He might have been the first social worker the world's ever seen. Yeah, about ever people had a problem, they went to Solomon to get the answer for it. And apparently somebody asked him one time about alcoholism, because he describes this in Proverbs. He said, Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes, they that tarry long at the wine. Everybody was a wino in those days. They didn't have the hard stuff like we got it today. He said, You will be as one who sleepeth in the midst of the sea. Remember how you used to lay down in bed and that old bed start moving around on you? Or that sleepeth at the top of a tall mast. You know how a mast sways back and forth? He said, you will say they have beaten me and I felt it not. And he surely knew some of us men. He said, and thine eyes shall behold strange women. Alcoholics really haven't changed very much, have they? <laughs> and thine heart shall utter perverse things. Like, trust me, honey. Please trust me. <laughs> he said, and yet they will arise in the morning and seek it yet again. Almost a perfect description of alcoholism as we know it today. But he didn't have an answer for it, because he didn't know what caused it. 
And we've had medical people, spiritual people, throughout our history try to determine what alcoholism is. There was a doctor named Dr. Trotter that lived in England a long time ago. And he said that I believe alcoholism is an illness. But he couldn't explain what it was, therefore they didn't have an answer for it. There was a doctor that lived here in the United States named Dr. Benjamin Rush. He's one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He wrote a paper on alcoholism, described the alcoholic. And he said he felt it was an illness too. But he couldn't name what it was, he couldn't determine it, so he had no solution. It's only in this century that we have been able to find out what alcoholism is. And then once we found out what it is, then we could find a solution to it. You know, I don't think we alcoholics today who are in AA realize how lucky, lucky we really are to be living in the period of time when we found out what alcoholism is and we found out the solution to it. And as I look at our history, which we're going to be doing a lot of this weekend, I'm convinced in my mind that God got tired of seeing people like us die from alcoholism. And he took various different people from around the world and gave us these pieces of information that allows us to recover from that condition today. And I think one of the first persons that he used was this little doctor called Dr. Silkworth. When Dr. Silkworth was in medical school, he became very interested in we alcoholics. But when he got out of medical school, he learned, like most doctors did, it was very difficult to make a living working with alcoholics. Most doctors do not like to work with alcoholics. They said then and they say today that an alcoholic will not tell you the truth. That's certainly true, isn't it? And they said they will not do what we tell them to do. And that's certainly true, isn't it? But they said the main reason we don't want to work with them is they won't pay their bills. <laughs> so Dr. Silkworth, in order to find a way to make a living, had to go off into another field, but always interested in we alcoholics. And he became very successful in his field. But in the late 1930s, or 1920s, we had, of course, the great stock market crash. And Silky had everything he owned invested in the stock market. And he lost it just like everybody else did. Lost the good job he had. And he had to find a job somewhere. And Charlie Towns from the town hospital, who Silky had met before through his interest on, in alcoholics, offered him a job. And said, well, won't you come to work here and I'll pay you $30 a week in room and board. And you can help me in working with other alcoholics, or working with alcoholics. So Silky went to work in the town hospital in 1930. And he began to work with people like us, and he began to see us come into the hospital. Terrible, terrible physical and mental condition. And he began to withdraw us from alcohol, build the body up, and et cetera. And 60 or 90, 30, 60, 90 days later, he would see us leave the hospital in reasonably good shape. And then a month or two or three or four later, he'd see us come back in in worse shape than we were before continually going in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. He also noticed some people that he worked with who drank like we drank but did not go in and out and in and out and in and out. He also noticed other people who drank moderately and safely. 
And he began to say there's something different about these alcoholics. There's something different about the body. Apparently alcohol does something to them that it doesn't do to normal people. And he began to develop this little idea that when you put alcohol in your body, it produces an actual physical craving that makes it impossible for us to stop drinking. But he also said even in those days, that's not the real problem with the alcoholic. He said the real problem is that the alcoholic cannot keep from drinking. He said people who are heavy drinkers, people who are moderate drinkers, if they want to quit drinking, they just quit and it doesn't bother them at all. But he said it seems as though the alcoholic, after they quit, the mind begins to play tricks on them and begins to think about one or two drinks and how it makes them feel. And he said that idea becomes so powerful that it overcomes the idea that they can't drink and they take a drink and end up drunk every time. He said, now if you can't drink safely and if you can't keep from drinking, then you're powerless over alcohol. Now we don't know whether Bill Wilson is the first one he told that to or not, but we know Bill is probably the first one to act on that information. Then after Bill got sober and after Dr. Bob got sober, and after Bill Dodson got sober, and after the first 40 got sober, based on that information, and decided to write the book, they went to see Dr. Silkworth and said, well, you let us put that information in the book so that other alcoholics can see what their problem is, too. And they said, will you write some of it for us? And the doctor said, yeah, you can use it, and I'll write some of it under one condition, that we will call it the doctor's opinion. He said, I can't prove it. There's no facts behind it, so we'll just have to call it an opinion. And he said, by the way, don't use my name. <laughs> he said, they'll throw me completely out of the medical profession if you use my name on this deal. <clears throat> In 1956, when they came out with the second edition, 1955 and 56, they came out with the second edition. By that time, the Medical Association, the American Society, the Psychiatric Association had recognized the fact that alcoholism is an illness. And Dr. Silkworth said in the second edition, you can put my name in it now. <laughs> so for the second and third, you've got Silkworth, but in here you don't. Let's look at what the doctor had to say for just a little bit. Let's go to Roman numeral page 24. That's XXIV. And I didn't know that when I got sober. He said, the physician who our request gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, that the body of the alcoholic is quite as normal as his mind. Now, we know there's no must in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, but there are a lot of musts in this book called Alcoholics Anonymous, and there's one of the first ones. We must believe that the body... Is, uh, of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as the mind. Now this is the first time we can find anywhere in written history a reference to the fact that the body is affected as well as the mind. Everything up until this time they have talked about the mind only. Weak will, moral character, sin, and etc. But here we says that, see a statement that says the body is quite as abnormal as the mind. I think he's telling us two things. That the body is affected also, but I think he's also saying the mind is abnormal 
when it comes to alcohol. We react to it different physically and also mentally in an abnormal manner. And we'll talk about both of those. The first one we're going to look at is the body. If it did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality, or were outright mental defectives. Now, these things were true to some extent, in fact, to a considerable extent with some of us. <laughs> you bet you. <laughs> but we're sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out this physical factor is incomplete. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us. As layman, our opinions to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. Now, if the purpose of a textbook is to transfer information from the mind of one human being through the written word to the mind of another human being, then it stands to reason the transference of that information is going to be based upon the understanding of the words that are used. If the writer of the book uses a certain word and understands it this way, the reader of the book reads that word and understands it this way, a different understanding, then the information that comes through is going to be garbled and incomplete information. And there seems to be a few key words in the big book that many of us have had difficulty with. And I think the first word we've had a real problem with is this word allergy. You know, most of us, when we come here, we assume already we know what an allergy is. I know I did. And I knew if you were allergic to something, and you got around it, or you ate it, or you drank it, or something like that, that there would be some physical manifestation or indicator of that allergy. For instance, if you eat strawberries and you're allergic to them, you'll break out in a rash. The rash being the manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to milk and you drink it, you'll have a bad case of dysentery. The dysentery being the manifestation of that allergy. If you're allergic to certain plants such as ragweeds and you get around them, your eyes, nose itch water and you start sneezing. The itchy, watery eyes, nose, and the sneezing, that's the manifestation of that allergy. So I knew if you were allergic to something, there would be something there that you could see. So they came to me and they said, Charlie, you've got an allergy to alcohol. You'll never be able to safely drink it again. And I said, how in the hell can I be allergic to alcohol? I'm drinking a quart a day. <laughs> how can you possibly drink that much of something you're allergic to? And I said, besides that, when I drink alcohol, I don't break out in a rash. And I don't have a bad case of dysentery. Once in a while I might, depending on what I'd been drinking, but usually I didn't. Nor did it make my eyes, nose itch, water, and cause me to sneeze. And I said, I don't understand what you're talking about. You need to explain that to me. And they said, well, you don't need to understand. They said, all you've got to know is you can't drink it. Well, today I think I know why they told me that. I don't think they understood it a bit better than I did. And I went from person to person to person to person, trying to get somebody to explain this allergy to me. And all they would say is, what difference does it make? Forget the damned allergy. Don't drink and you'll be all right. Keep coming to meetings. Now, if you're, if you're an alcoholic like I am, with a keen intellectual alcoholic mind, and you get a question like that dangling out here in front of you, if you don't get the answer to it, sooner or later it's going to drive you out of your mind. 
And one day, in sheer desperation, I went to a source of information that has never failed me since that time. I went to the dictionary. <laughs> and I looked up the word allergy, and I found several different definitions of it. There's another way you do with any word, depending on how you use it. But I think I found the one that fit me exactly. When it said an allergy is an abnormal reaction to any food, beverage, or substance of any kind. And an abnormal reaction. So I began to look back over my drinking history to see where I was abnormal. And to my amazement, I, didn't, I found out I don't know what's normal and what's abnormal. The only thing I knew about drinking was the way I drank. And the way those people drank who drank with me, and if they didn't drink like I did, we didn't drink together. So to find out what's normal, to see if I'm abnormal, I have to go to the normal, social, temperate, moderate drinker. Those who drink alcohol and do not get in trouble with it. And I asked them to describe to me how they feel when they take a drink. And they said, well, we come home from work, tired, tense, wrought up from the day's work. We can have a couple of drinks before dinner. We begin to get a relaxing, comfortable feeling. We'll go ahead and have dinner, and we probably won't drink anymore that night. Well, I don't feel that way when I drink alcohol. <coughs> Whenever I take a drink of alcohol, it passes over my lips. My lips begin to tingle immediately. Hits my teeth, and they kind of chatter up and down. Strikes my tongue, and I can feel it begin to grow and expand and swell. Hits my cheeks, and they kind of flutter in and out. At the same time, it's passing through my sinus cavities up into my forehead, and I begin to get a feeling up here in my forehead, which is absolutely, indescribably wonderful. Now, I didn't swallow the damn stuff yet. I just got it in my mouth. When I swallow that alcohol, it starts down through my esophagus. Great things begin to take place. The first thing that happens is my chest begins to grow and expand and gets bigger and bigger. Hits my stomach and just literally explodes like a bomb. Immediately I feel it racing through my arms, and they get longer and longer. Hits my hands and fingers, and they begin to tingle and vibrate. Same time it's racing through my arms, it's racing through my legs. They're getting longer and longer. I'm getting taller and taller, and it hits my feet and toes, and they get a hot, intense, burning, exciting, get up and go somewhere and do something feeling. <laughs> I don't understand the comfortable, relaxing feeling when you have a drink. I These people told me something that blew my mind for me. They said, Charlie, whenever we have a couple of drinks, we begin to experience a feeling of rest, or a feeling of dizziness, a feeling of being out of control. And they said, we don't like that feeling. Therefore, one or two drinks is all we want to drink. How many times have you and I tried to get them to drink more, and I say, oh, no, no, I feel this already. Oh, no, 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 this is making me dizzy. I don't want any more. Well, today I realize that's the normal reaction to alcohol. You see, for most people, when they put alcohol in the system, it hits the stomach, it immediately goes into the bloodstream, immediately goes to the brain. And for a normal drinker, it acts as a downer. It's a sedative. It is supposed to give them a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling. Now, when it goes into my stomach, into my bloodstream, into my brain, instead of me getting a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling, alcohol, for me, acts as an upper. It's a stimulant. And my brain gets a very exciting, in-control feeling. They have two drinks, and they want to go to bed. 
I have two drinks, and by God, I want to go to town immediately. So I react to it differently mentally. And another thing they told me is that when we have a couple of drinks, not only do we get a slightly tipsy, out-of-control feeling, they said we begin to experience a feeling of nausea. And they said we don't like that feeling. And therefore, one or two drinks is all we want to take. How many times have you tried to get them to drink more? And they say, oh, no, 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 this is making me sick. I don't want any more of it. That's the normal reaction to alcohol. Alcohol is a toxic substance, a destroyer of human tissue. When you put it in your body, your mind and your body, you're supposed to react to it with nausea and say, puke it up and get it out of here. When I put it in my body, instead of my body experiencing a feeling of nausea, my body experiences an actual physical craving which demands more of the same. Their body said, puke it up. Mine said, put some more in here. So not only do I react to it differently mentally, but I also react to it differently physically. Now the only difference between normal and abnormal is what do the majority of the people do? If the majority, 9 out of 10, react that way, 1 out of 10 reacts the way I do, then my reaction is considered to be abnormal, therefore I'm considered to be allergic to alcohol. You can't see it. You can only feel it. And only alcoholics feel it. You see, I kept looking for the rash. I kept looking for the dysentery. No, you don't see our allergy. You feel it. And only we alcoholics feel it. Joe? I said you'd get in trouble going to town. You know, that's the trouble with trouble. It always starts off as fun, isn't it? How many of you ever went out to get drunk and, and, and to get in?